This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's May 1943. The Battle of Attu, called the Forgotten Battle by World War II veterans, was raging on the Aleutian Island with an Arctic cold and penetrable fog, rocketing winds that combined to create some of the worst weather on Earth. Both American and Japanese forces were tirelessly fighting in a year-long campaign. Both sides would suffer thousands of casualties. Marco Masick's new book, The Storm on Our Shores, tells the heart-wrenching but ultimately redemptive story of two soldiers, a Japanese surgeon and an American sergeant during that brutal battle in Alaska, in which the sergeant discovers the medic's revelatory and fascinating diary which in turn changes our war-torn society's perceptions of Japan. Marco Masic is a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, best-selling author of The Big Year, which was made into a movie, and Halfway to Heaven. He won the 2009 National Outdoor Book Award for Outdoor Literature, the 2003 National Press Club Award for Environmental Journalism, and was lead writer for the Denver Post team that won the 2000 Pulitzer Prize. He lives in Denver with his wife and their three sons. Marco Masic, thanks for joining us. Thanks a million for having me. Uh, I want to start just very briefly um, with the big year that was uh, made into a movie. I, I'm always curious what uh, what the author thinks of, of the movie. Steve Martin, uh, Jack Black. Well, you know, as a as a word guy, uh, you spend so much time sweating the details and trying to create uh, pictures in your mind with words and. Then to see something on a big screen, it's almost like cheating. <laughs> I mean, pictures and sound is just such a powerful medium. Uh, it can't get all the nuances. It can't get all the details that you can get through writing. But uh, to see that book uh, made into a movie, I mean, my, my book was nonfiction, you know, and the, the movie was yeah. purely fiction. They changed uh, some things, but, uh, but, but. You can, but but the visual medium, you can you can feel things, you know, on, on radio. You can you can you can hear the wind, um, and that's just a harder thing to convey uh, in print. I mean, in, in print, you've got to let uh, your imagination do the work, uh, which takes some effort on behalf of both the writer and the reader. Yeah, I think that's why reading is such a satisfying experience because you're you're as a reader, you're providing, you know, you're you're doing part of the work. Uh, that's true. That's true. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, the, 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 the big year, it was really, uh, uh, <laughs> it was a, it was a crazy thing. You know, I, I came out of the newspaper business where I made a living for a number of years doing whatever makes the front page, which is usually man at his worst, you know, it's, yeah. it's politicians and it's criminals and, uh, and then the big year of, you know, three men obsessed with, uh, breaking the North American, a uh, bird watching record. Uh, I actually got to write about people I liked. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were just kind of grown up Tom Sawyers, yeah, chasing yeah. around the globe uh, or, or chasing around the continent in in, in search of birds. And, uh, uh, and and they just kind of surrendered to their obsession, and it was really a wonderful, uh, joyful, uh, delightful thing to be able to write about. So tell us, th- this is a this is a phrase, right? The 
uh, a big year for for a birder, and then that'll we're, we're heading toward Atu here. <laughs> I, I believe this is how you discovered this island. Um, so a big year. What is a big year for a birder? Well, a, a big year for a birder is uh, how many species of birds can you see uh, in one year? Uh, there are a lot of people who will do it in their home patch or their backyard, their their home county. Uh, but then the in, in, in more you know some people will do it in in a state, but kind of the granddaddy of them all is the North American big year uh, over a full continent, and you get the full sweep of migration uh, twice, both coming and going. You know we're just in the start of migration now, and of course you guys, I mean you've got one of the great staging areas for shorebird migration in the world. I mean, geez, Great Salt Lake, mm-hmm. there, there's five million. Of uh, uh, phalaropes and avocets, and it's just it's spectacular. You're really lucky to live in a in a place like that in your backyard. It is um, it is beautiful. And so in yeah. a big year, uh, people just uh, people people try to see as many species as they can in a given year. Mm-hmm. So um, I believe I read that uh, this is this is how you got out to uh, Atu. Is that how I pronounce it? That's right. Uh, that's. Atu, yeah, that's it's it's a crazy thing where birds will lead you because uh, it turns out that in the the 1980s and 1990s, uh, the time I was writing about for the the birding book, uh, the greatest place in North America to see rarities, uh, unusual birds, was this little island called Atu, uh, the westernmost island in the Aleutian chain, uh, so far west that they actually curved the international day line around it to keep. North America on the same calendar page. I mean, it's it's farther west than Fiji. It's it's about it's about the same latitude as uh, as New Zealand, uh, but because it's closer to mainland Asia than to mainland Alaska, uh, all these weird uh, Asiatic species would get blown off course during migration, and birders would come to see them. And so, sure enough, I was uh, researching the history of this island. It's actually not even a little island. It's 350 square miles. Uh, it's about 15 times bigger than Manhattan. But I was researching the, the history of it, and for me, it was a real eye-opener. Uh, and I saw that, wow, this, this was a site of a pretty major battle during World War II. Uh, I didn't know that the U.S., right? I didn't know that Japan had invaded and conquered uh, part of Alaska during World War II. And I didn't know that this was the the first U.S. soil lost since the War of 1812. Um, I didn't know that in Alaska uh, there was a battle that uh, this was the highest casualty rate in the Pacific War, except for Iwo Jima. Only Iwo Jima had a worse casualty rate. And so uh, with uh, a history like that, I just felt like digging deeper. And so uh, I did. So the birds brought me to a World War II uh, book and ultimately uh, the story of two men on opposite sides of a really historic battle. I want to back up just very briefly to the back to the birds. Uh, so uh, I guess the, there are rules, right? If you're going to have a big year, are we going to confine it to North America? So Atu is technically still in North America, and you can go there and bird <laughs> Asiatic birds are blown off course, so you can count them. Is that what they're <laughs> doing out there? <laughs> as soon as they hit North American airspace, you're golden. You can you can count them. Now, how they draw the the lines for yeah. uh, 
North America is a little arbitrary. I mean, I think if you ask most geographers, they would say that Mexico is part of North America, but birders, uh, birders cut it off at the border, and so it includes the United States and uh, and Canada. But you know, the Aleutian Islands. Uh, that's that's there, there's no question that's part of uh, that's part of Alaska, and uh, you know, so much of a big year. Uh, the math is roughly there are. Uh, about 675 uh, native bird species of uh, uh, to North America, or what <laughs> they consider to be North America. 675 birds that uh, either you know uh, fly here, migrate here, nest here, mostly nest here. Um, but then the, the the winter of a big year, uh, ultimately uh, these days, I mean, you've got to see at least 750 different species, or in, in some cases, nearly you know 800 different birds, and so. You know what? Where are those birds coming from? Uh, what they thrive on are things like, frankly, what we just had overnight here in Denver—a bomb cyclone during migration, mm-hmm. really bad weather that blows uh, birds off course, uh, knocks them out of the sky. You know, most most birds migrate at night, and uh, when they hit uh, a really nasty headwind, uh, then they they dive for the ground, uh, seeking cover, trying to. Seek uh, uh, survival. I mean, to me, uh, bird migration is one of the most fantastic forces that is just kind of hidden in plain sight. I mean, there are literally billions of creatures over our heads while we sleep. Um, they've got this in- inevitable natural rhythm that's pushing them from, I mean, in some cases, you'll get even big raptors, Swainson's hawks. I mean, these are, these are birds that are in southern Argentina. And yet they make it here in my backyard in Colorado to, to nest. I mean, how do they navigate that far? How do they know where they're going? I mean, they're not like, uh, they're definitely like not me. They're not like me driving our kids on a road trip. They, they must either stop for directions or they know how to get there. But, um, but it's, kind of a, it's, it, it's kind of a miracle uh, hidden in plain sight. There are these little hummingbirds. I mean, they're, they're, as, big as, uh, they're as big as your pinky. You know, they're, they're so light, you can mail 10 of them for the price of a first-class postage stamp. And yet these little tiny hummingbirds, uh, they've got to fly overnight from the Yucatan in Mexico. Uh, so many of them then just cross the Gulf of Mexico in one night. And if their tiny little wings touch the water, they die. Uh, but obviously there are a lot of ruby-throated hummingbirds on the east coast of the United States, so there are a number of them that make it, uh, and that's, uh, it's really, uh, you know, through evolution, some uh, creatures have figured out that crossing a giant body of water like the Gulf of Mexico, you know, that's that's their way. But, you know, there are others that, that follow the land masses up, and, uh, uh, and, and to think, though, that you've got this, you've got this bird that, you know, is, again, is the size of your pinky that might have been in Guatemala, just a few days ago, and now it's uh, now it's at uh, Tom's backyard feeder, yeah. know, sipping on some uh, some sugar water. It's fantastic. Yeah, that is it is a miracle. It's, it is wonderful. Uh, good for us to pay attention to that, isn't it? Uh, sometimes we don't. Uh, I want to so uh, well birds. You know, birds. Birds also are just to say, birds are just they're also kind of one thing that really ties the world together because of migration, because of this this great pendulum uh, sweep that uh, what they do in South America 
through development uh, really affects us in North America, where birds come to breed, and vice versa. You know, when we uh, do a number on our habitat, then there are fewer birds that go home to, to South America. So birds don't recognize borders. Uh, they don't recognize politics, but they feel the effect of it, and especially when we don't take care and protect them. Yeah, that's that's very true. Very true. I wonder. Uh, so I wonder if you could tell us about uh, about Atu. This is a fascinating place, and get us into this story. I understand you have to have several plane, several long plane trips to get out there. It's you say it's the same same longi- longitude as, uh, or it's it's about the longitude of Fiji, is it? it it's farther west than Fiji. Farther it's about west, the same okay. As uh, New Zealand, as New Zealand. Wow. And uh, this island is, uh, it's 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 way out there, and I had the the pleasure and the joy uh, to go out there and camp in September. Uh, nobody's lived on that island for uh, about eight years. Uh, my understanding is that nobody landed a plane there for two years. It's it's 500 miles from the nearest civilian population. Um, it's at the, the confluence of the uh, Bering Sea and the Pacific. And so really cold water from the Bering Sea mixes right there with the warmer water from the Pacific. And it creates some of the worst weather on Earth. It's it's crazy. Uh, the, the the swirling uh, currents make these spontaneous winds called uh, willowaws. Uh, these are hurricane force gales that just rocket down from these three thousand foot ice encrusted volcanic mountaintops and and hit the shores. And so you can be walking along on Atu and just boom, you get knocked off your feet because these unpredictable Willowaws are, are, are coming out of nowhere. And, and on top of that, uh, Atu uh, only gets about eight days a year that are free of snow or rain or sleet or especially fog. Uh, it's got the, the, the visibility is awful. It's just uh, you, 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 you live. I mean, soldiers who fought in the Battle of Atu talked about how they could not see the end of their rifle. The fog was so dense, so it's uh, uh, a pretty, a really difficult place to live, a really difficult place to survive, and an even worse place to prosecute a war. And there was a big battle uh, out there. Uh, you say, why? Why don't we know about this? You know, we know about Iwo Jima. We don't know about the Battle of Atu. Well, uh, a big reason is because it was a really embarrassing chapter in the history of both countries uh, for reasons we can talk about later, but I, uh, I mean, in, in Japan, uh, uh, I mean, Japan basically abandoned a garrison of 3,000 men. I mean, the government just gave up on them, walked away from, from them. Uh, so it was a, a shameful chapter in the history of Japan. And in the U.S., uh, for the U.S., at first it was a, a really bad uh, propaganda loss. Uh, the U.S. said, recently just been shocked uh, by the attack at Pearl Harbor, and uh, the War Department was in no mood to let Americans know that even after Pearl Harbor, uh, that we had lost more uh, U.S. soil, that we had had lost a significant uh, uh, piece of territory that the Japanese had uh, come in and taken. And then, sure enough, when when the U.S. uh, returned, uh, which is you know much of what uh, I write about in, in my book, The Storm on Our Shores, then uh, 
what they had done is they had told all the troops that a battle would take only three days to free the island of uh, the Japanese uh, Imperial Army. But instead of three days, it took, it took three weeks. And so ultimately, um, there were more than there were more than a hundred thousand men, a hundred thousand U.S. servicemen, ultimately who served in the Aleutian Islands. And at the end of the war, when it was over, they came home, and people just looked at them, kind of dumbfounded. Really, you fought in Alaska? We didn't know that. That was uh, they, they. They felt like uh, I mean, the, the the War Department was in in no mood to uh, publicize what had happened in Alaska. Ultimately, the U.S. Uh, survived. Ultimately, the U.S. achieved its goals uh, militarily. But uh, you know, a lot of what I wrote about is uh, about the human toll uh, that was exacted through a long military campaign like that. And that's a very moving story. We'll get into at least you know part of this uh, in this hour. Um, let's take a break first before we get into this, and we'll uh, I'll have you tell us about the, the two men at the center of the story, um, a Japanese surgeon and an American uh, sergeant and uh, how they uh, connect, and a diary, which became very influential. Uh, it's just a fascinating story. A lot of humanity, as you made reference to. Um, our guest today is Marco Masic. His new book is a fascinating story, The Storm on Our Shores. Tells the heart-wrenching but ultimately redemptive story of those two soldiers. More following this break. This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. It's May 1943. The Battle of Attu, called the Forgotten Battle by World War II veterans, was raging on the Aleutian Island with an Arctic cold and penetrable fog, rocketing winds. And uh, this story is told in Marco Masic's new book, The Storm on Our Shores, a story of two soldiers, a Japanese surgeon and an American sergeant, and a diary, um, and uh, more. There's a redemption that happens as we go along, even many years, decades after uh, the war. Marco Masic joins us uh, for the hour. I wonder, Marco Masic, if you could uh, tell us briefly the story you recount in your preface. Pretty gripping. Uh, uh, Old man, (laughs) a veteran, um, contacts a a Japanese-American woman. Sure. Uh, Laura Davis is an intensive care nurse uh, who has got five-year-old twins, and her elderly mother has just moved in with her in Los Angeles. And one day she gets a knock on the door from a man she does not recognize. He's an older guy, and he's nervous. He's fidgeting. And he just starts kind of babbling. Uh, He's talking about how he's retired to Tucson. He's talking about how he raises orchids. And Laura Davis finally says, okay, you're very nice and pleasant, but I've got a lot going on here. I've got five-year-olds having at each other. And so she walks him out to the car, and he still looks really clearly nervous. Something's up. And he opens the car door and turns over his shoulder and says, oh, by the way, I'm the one who killed your father. And he drives away. 
And this is the event that sets both Laura Katsuguchi Davis and Dick Laird uh, on a really remarkable journey uh, that lasted for a number of years and really came to restore uh, so much of my faith in humanity. We just live in such divided times that these two people, indeed, Dick Laird had killed uh, Laura Davis's father. Um, and he came to not only tell her that, but to seek something. And uh, they were able to figure something out that really uh, was moving to me. And that's what got me going on the book. Uh, Laura's father, uh, Laura's father, uh, Nobuo Tatsuguchi, uh, who took the name Paul, uh, he was born in Hiroshima and was a devout Christian, a Seventh-day Adventist, uh, had moved from Hiroshima to California to attend uh, first college at Pacific Union College and then medical school uh, in Southern California at Loma Linda University, did his internship at uh, White Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles, and he really fell in love with America. Uh, he loved uh, the vastness, the chaos. Uh, the, the the huge swirling mix of different people, you know, very, very different than what he knew uh, growing up in Japan. Uh, he fell in love with America so much that um girlfriend from Japan came over. He proposed to her at Yosemite National Park, <laughs> and they were married in California and took off for their honeymoon on one of the first Greyhound bus tours across <laughs> the country. And they actually spent part of their honeymoon at Niagara Falls. <laughs> I mean, what more American thing can you do, especially in that era, but honeymoon at, at Niagara Falls. And so what happened was uh, they'd fallen in love with each other even more on the honeymoon. Uh, they'd fallen in love with America on their trip. But when they returned, there was a note there with some awful uh, news, a family crisis that forced them to return to Japan and it was the worst possible time to do that because that was when Pearl Harbor happened. And mm -hmm. so Paul Tatsuguchi, an American-trained surgeon, uh, was drafted against his will to fight for Japan against the United States, the nation he loved. Yeah, it, it's just, I mean, you couldn't make this up, could you? Um it's uh, so. Tell us a little bit more about uh, Paul. I, I was quite drawn to him, and the descriptions in your book. His one of his friends uh, called him. Uh, you know, he said he's really American, uh, and I think that's how Paul felt. They called him Tatsy, right? They did. They called him uh, Tatsy, and uh, I think America really kind of uh, changed him uh, in in Japan. The Japan that he grew up in. It was such a a structured place. Um, and, and, and there was so much emphasis put on just, you know, not failing instead of really, you know, trying to, to strive to, 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 to go big. Um, and so he really enjoyed the, um, uh, kind of the freedom of, of the United States. And, and frankly, he loved ice cream. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of ice cream in, in Japan. And, and he, he was just, uh, they went on this honeymoon trip and they saw America at its best. You know, they saw they saw the Grand Canyon. They saw Rocky Mountain National Park. You know, they 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 saw they saw the big uh, car factories in uh, Detroit. They saw the skyscrapers of 
Manhattan and for uh, for a man coming from uh, a country that uh, had been beset with so much poverty for so many years, uh, Japan pre-war Japan was far different than it is uh, today. It was it was no economic powerhouse. Uh, so Paul uh, really came away with uh, an intense uh, love of America, but also. Uh, kind of a healthy res- respect because he had just never seen a place that had such industrial might. Um, you know, there were so many buildings in one little island, Manhattan, that were you know much bigger than anything in Japan. And so, you know, like, like everyone, he read the newspapers at the time, he listened to the radio, and he knew that there were drum beats of war that were beating between uh, Japan and the United States. And on the one hand, he was a really practical guy. Uh, he had been across, unlike almost all of his countrymen, uh, Paul Tatsuguchi knew America. He knew the, the might and power that this country uh, has. But he also, uh, as a really devout uh, Seventh-day Adventist, uh, he was morally opposed to war. You know, His faith uh, precluded him from fighting. He was, uh, If he had been a U.S. citizen, he likely would have gotten a conscientious subjector status. And and not fought. Of course, you know, in, in in Japan there was no such thing. So, so he's really a guy who is divided. You know, he's born in Japan but loves America. He's uh, uh, loyal. He still feels loyal to his country, but uh, but his faith tells him uh, that he can't fight. And so, uh, so as a writer, the the elements are there. He's really got to make some choices. Um, and before we get to that, um, I wonder if you tell us about the the racism that's being institutionalized over these couple of decades leading up to the war. I was I was struck by your description of the Asiatic Bard Zone Act, uh, quoting here the, the denied citizenship to quote all idiots, imbeciles, feeble-minded persons, epileptics, insane persons, and most Asians. That was really an eye opener for me, you know, somebody of my generation, because, uh, you know, my my grandparents uh, came from what was then Czechoslovakia. The gates, if you were from Europe, the gates of Ellis Island were open to you, and that's how my grandparents came through a ship. Um, but just the outright racism that uh, this country had against. I mean, I, I think the original intent was mainly against the Chinese. You know, so many uh, Chinese had come to labor on uh, the great railroads that were built across our West. Uh, but afterward, there was just there, there, there was all kinds of resentment against, uh, uh, and, and it never distinguished between countries. It was just it was Asian. You know, you might be from China, from from Japan, from from Korea, uh, from the Philippines, but. You know, in in, in in these acts, uh, the the doors were wide open uh, for immigrants of of Europe, uh, but not for Asia. And so, Paul Tatsuguchi, uh, you know, he he would definitely uh, see and bear some of the brunt of that on the streets of Los Angeles. You know, there were there were slurs uh, directed his way. Okay, it looks like we've uh, lost uh, uh, Mark Omasic. We'll uh, get him back. Let's go to break, and uh, we'll get Mark Omasic back as uh, quick as we can. The um, The title of the book is uh, The Storm on Our Shores, and uh, we'll resume the conversation momentarily. 
This program is part of the Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils in partnership with the Pulitzer Prizes Board for a collaboration between UPR, Utah Humanities, the Salt Lake Tribune, and the Salt Lake City Library. The initiative seeks to deepen the public's knowledge and appreciation of the vital connections between democracy, the humanities, journalism, and an informed citizenry. The Democracy and the Informed Citizen Initiative is supported by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Marco Masic. His book is The Storm on Our Shores, tells the story of two soldiers, a Japanese surgeon and an American sergeant, during a brutal battle in Alaska, World War II, and uh, the story of a diary as well, and the effect that had. Uh, Marco Masic, we, we got you back. Uh, sorry about that disconnection. Uh, yeah, sorry, I'm not sure what happened there. Yeah, uh, so great, great to have you back in uh, the middle of this pulse-pounding story. Um, so uh, circumstances, family circumstances uh, take um, the Tatsuguchi's uh, uh, Polonese wife back to uh, Japan, and this, as you said, is the worst possible time. It's uh, the build-up to, uh, to World War II. Right, the drums of war are beating between Japan and the United States. Uh, you know, here in, in the U.S., you know, we tend to think of World War II starting with you know, maybe Hitler's invasion of, 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 you know, what became the Eastern Bloc countries of Poland. Uh, but, you know, the reality, though, is that Japan had been at war for a number of years in Manchuria and China uh, and, and going across uh, the Far East. And so uh, the U.S. had been uh, tightening sanctions. Uh, FDR had been tightening sanctions against Japan, uh, which was... Uh, really alarming to the Japanese because they relied on American oil and American natural resources uh, to prosecute their war. And, uh, you know, the the, the more that uh, the U.S. tried to get Japan uh, to stop waging war on its neighbors, uh, the, the, the more the sanctions increased. And ultimately, uh, you know, that was uh, a big reason why Pearl Harbor happened, because uh, the U.S. had cut off uh, so many supplies to Japan that uh, their politicians made uh, the really, you know, <laughs> historically uh, bad decision to uh, to attack uh, Pearl Harbor, and so that's where that's where uh, that came. And, and of course, when that happened, um, you know, besides the societal <laughs> uh, uh, problem, uh, it was really difficult personally for Paul Tatsuguchi because he had spent all this time in the United States. Uh, he was wearing uh, different clothes, had different customs, uh, and he was viewed with a lot of suspicion by uh, his countrymen. Some wondered uh, whether he was a spy. You know, was this guy who had spent so much time in the United States, now after Pearl Harbor, officially the enemy of Japan, uh, was this guy really uh, Japanese? Uh, and so uh, he was viewed with a lot of suspicion, uh, but at the same time, uh, the Japanese were desperate for manpower, and so this uh, devout Christian, morally opposed to war, is conscripted against his will to fight for the Imperial Army uh, against uh, the United States. And uh, he is uh, uh, he he suffers a crisis of faith. Uh, what does he do? Uh, if he's really a pacifist, if if he really be- believes. In his scripture, he believes that he can't fight. Uh, what can he do? He's supposed to wage war. And uh, the way that he settled it in his own conscience was that he was going as 
a surgeon, uh, and he would go to heal uh, and not to wound. And so, uh, you know, ultimately, uh, he's a Hiroshima native. He's Japanese. Um, he still tried to be able to serve his country and honor his faith. Uh, but the Japanese still didn't trust him. He was, as far as I can tell, about the only surgeon in the Imperial Army who was never promoted uh, to be an officer. And then, of course, uh, I think in a further sign of his home country's distrust of him, they sent him away to do battle in a place that nobody had ever heard of, this lonely, uh, forbidding island in the Aleutian chain of Alaska called Attu. Uh, I wonder if we, uh, yeah, it's just fast. He's conflicted, he, and he's seen with suspicion uh, by some uh, people in the U.S. as well. So he's, and culturally, he feels in the middle, and he's he's out here in this <laughs> in this remote battle. I wonder if we could switch gears. Well, you're, you're, yeah, go ahead. You're, you're exactly right, because, you know, well, I'm just, the, the, the irony here is that uh, if he, he was viewed as, as with suspicion as a possible spy by his countrymen in Japan, and yet if he had remained, in the United States, if he had sought U.S. citizenship and become a citizen, uh, he would have been sent to an internment camp. Yeah, that's just right. Because of his, just because of his race. So he really had no, he had no good choice. Yeah. Uh, and he's out there, uh, you know, trying to keep his faith, right? And, um, and uh, we'll continue that story. But I want to switch gears to Dick Laird. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about him. He was, a, he was a coal miner, was he? Uh, Dick Laird grew up in Appalachia and moved around uh, in in dire poverty, chasing coal jobs, Uh, was forced to drop out of school at age 14 to help support his family. And by age 16, uh, he was an explosives expert underground in coal mines throughout Ohio, West Virginia, Virginia, all over Appalachia. And he's getting hurt. His friends are getting hurt. Some Some are being killed. Uh, underground coal mining, especially back then, was one of the most dangerous occupations around. And so he is looking for a ticket out of poverty in Appalachia and signs up for the Army. And he ends up uh, being shipped uh, and does his training in uh, the desert, the Mojave Desert of California, because he and the troops are training there to take on Rommel and the Nazis in the sands of North Africa until one day they get word that the Japanese have invaded and conquered part of Alaska. And so all these troops that have been trained for the desert are now going to be re-tasked, reordered. And they are ordered into ships in San Francisco and sail to Alaska with desert gear. (laughs) With desert gear. Wow. Uh, And and this is a remote and forbidding, (laughs) as you just said, uh, you know, wind gusts and and cold and uh, but that i guess that's the fortunes of war well uh you know atu uh atu only makes sense as a military prize if you've never been there uh it is if you look at a map uh you could see somebody in tokyo saying this would be a great midpoint for us to launch a, a forward campaign against the west coast of the united states you know we can build an airstrip there we can resupply our troops uh but then there's the reality of what it's like when you get there. Um, you really can't take off and land planes there because the fog is so constant and so awful. And so uh, the Japanese did go in uh, in 1942. They invaded and conquered uh, Atu. There were a grand total of about four dozen people living there, uh, native Aleuts. 
and a uh, white uh, woman school teacher and her husband. Uh, you could have taken that island with a bullhorn. You didn't need any troops with a gun. Uh, there were people living a subsistence life uh, who would go out in a kayak with a sharp point and hope to get a whale to get the village through the uh, winter. I mean, there were <laughs> there was no military value to add to. But once the Japanese had it, uh, they were kind of stuck with it. They made it a propaganda victory. Uh, they could tell the people back home that we had gotten more uh, U.S. territory. But the reality is that it is a very, very harsh place to spend the summer, much less the winter. And the Japanese did, and uh, in a lot of ways, the Battle of Attu was fought uh, only because the other guy was there. Uh, it was really a, a fight over principle. Uh, mm-hmm. instead of uh, over any meaningful military prize. I, I want to make sure we talk about the, the diary, because this had a, had a big effect. Um, uh, so at a certain point, and I don't think we're giving away too much here, at a certain point, um, Paul Tatsuguchi knew, uh, yeah, I'm probably not going to make it, and at, at that point he uh, he starts writing this diary. Is that what happened? Right. So there's a garrison of 3,000 Japanese men on this island that is 500 miles from anything. Uh, They're being barraged by uh, U.S. airplanes that can fly occasionally when uh, once in a while the clouds may lift. Uh, And they are surrounded by uh, U.S. Navy ships. Uh, So they're blockaded. And for three weeks, uh, the U.S. uh, comes ashore and starts waging battle. And Japanese are running out of ammunition, they're running out of food, they are running out of hope. Uh, And so Paul Tatsuguchi uh, starts writing this war diary, uh, and it is a description of what it's like to be on the receiving end of the most powerful military in the history of the Earth. Uh, He is performing surgeries in caves as he is being strafed with shrapnel from American bombs. He's doing amputations uh, during firefights, uh, and he writes it all just kind of in a, in a matter-of-fact surgeon style. Uh, but then in the end, uh, the original garrison of 3,000 Japanese soldiers is down to only about 500, and the Japanese commander calls his men together. Um, they've got no food. They've got no ammo. And... He just calls them and orders them together and says, this is it. It's, it's, it's do or die. It's a last, it's a bonsai attack. And so the men gather and uh, leave, most of them just with bayonets, and storm up uh, through this very mountainous area. Uh, the U.S. troops had been told that this battle was only going to take three days. It took three weeks. The, the U.S. troops were so poorly uh, supplied that at one point, uh, Dick Laird, uh, the the American serviceman, uh, had no food, and he uh, he he uh, would he was crawling on his belly to a creek to catch a trout by hand for him just to to eat during this battle. Uh, you know the 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 U.S. Uh, the elements were were so awful on Attu that U.S. troops had to fight not only the enemy, the Japanese Imperial Army, but also the weather, and so there were. Dozens, hundreds of cases of frostbite, of amputations, uh, and that's that's how the 
the casualty rate uh, during this three-week battle came to uh, exceed anything in the war up to that time, and later it was surpassed only at uh, at Iwo Jima. And mm. so uh, the Japanese on their the the, the final uh, uh, their order for a final bonsai attack, and Paul Tatsuguchi, uh, who's been keeping this war diary, uh, sits down and writes what he thinks likely are his last words. And that really got me just thinking, for starters, could you collect your thoughts at all? If you thought this was it, what would you say to your wife? What would you say to your children? What would you say to your family? And so he did. He wrote a final diary entry and then joined the bonsai attack uh, early that morning through the fog on Atsu. And that day, uh, Dick Laird, uh, the American serviceman, wakes up, looks above him, sees a knoll, and above him there is an American mortar, and a squad of eight Japanese soldiers has claimed it. They've taken it, and they are spinning it around so that the weapon no longer points at the Japanese, but it's being turned back on the Americans. And Laird knows that this is... This is bad, and so he he pulls out a grenade, pulls the pin, and hurls it. Goes up and sees that some Japanese troops are still alive, and he ends that. He wins the Silver Star for his valor. He kills eight Japanese men, saves the mortar from being spun around and turned on U.S. troops. And when he looks around on the ground, he finds an address book that is full of names from California the classmates of Paul Tatsuguchi. He also finds this other document, which is written in Japanese, which Laird can't read, so he shoves it in his uh, pocket and continues uh, fighting. Uh, his hope was that this document you know, might have provided some really uh, valuable military strategy or some secret information. It gets translated very quickly and comes back to Laird. And what he finds was that, no, it did not have secret military information, but it had something maybe even more powerful. It had a sense of who it was whom he had just killed. Uh, U.S. troops like Laird had been told all through boot camp that the Japanese were these savage, ruthless, unthinking killing machines. And yet you could see in the diary that here's a man who loved his wife, who was deeply moved by faith, his favorite Bible verse, which he had inscribed in his own handwriting, and the Bible he brought to war was, was therefore choose faith. He had a daughter he hadn't even met because his wife was pregnant when he got shipped out to, to war. And so he bid farewell to everyone in his final diary entry. And this diary ended up being passed around. It was kind of the World War II equivalent of going viral. Um, you know, it's in war, you learn that it is it's easy to kill an enemy, but it is really difficult to kill a man. And Dick Laird won a silver star for what he did on Atsu. He was a war hero, and yet it just gnawed him that he had killed the wrong person, that he had killed not an enemy, but someone who had a family depending on him, someone who was devout. And it gave him nightmares the first night, the second night, then weeks and months and even years after, he was uh, he was haunted. 
So the, this this diary had a big effect on him, as, as it had others. Um, uh, I, I guess the propaganda that uh, you know soldiers are, are are taught readies them to to kill the enemy, dehumanizing the enemy. Th- those scales fell away, and uh, was that what produced the the night? But before I have you answer that, you you write something that's very it touched me a lot in the book. Uh, just to, and I'll paraphrase it; can't get it exact. Uh, you talk in in passing about uh, we send uh, you know young men usually out off to to do something nobody should have to do in war, and 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 nobody knows going in that they're going to be asked to do that. You know what we ask uh, the people who make sacrifices for this country is uh, remarkable, um, and in this case. You know, uh, I mean, politicians declare war, uh, generals decide the course of war, but ultimately it's people who fight war. It's people who feel the effects, and then it's their families uh, who live with the consequences long after the smoke is is blown away in the battlefield. And so in this case, Dick Laird was haunted. Uh, he had nightmares, uh, so many nights of whom he had killed on Attu and in other places that he went on to fight in the Pacific campaign. But it was especially that surgeon, uh, I think, that really troubled him. Dick Laird was always really, I mean, he was a, he was a coal miner who was forced to drop out of school at 14. He loved school. Um, he really didn't want to have to drop out of school. And here he had killed someone who had achieved a pinnacle of education. You know, he was a highly trained, highly competent uh, surgeon. And I think Laird just felt really awful about that. And so uh, Dick Laird spent... The next 40 years, trying to track down and find the family of the man he had killed. Ultimately successful, right? Uh, so we just have about two or three minutes uh, left. Don't want to give away, you know, everything, but uh, uh, but that's what I think he's seeking. He's seeking some sort of redemption, is he? When he goes to visit um, the, you know, Paul's uh, daughter. I think he doesn't really know what he is seeking. He's got a big burden. And he's not sure what the burden is. He did what his country asked him. He is a decorated war hero. And yet, what should have been one of the greatest moments of his life, he feels pangs about it. He feels awful about it. And so he meets with the daughter of the man he killed in battle. And the amazing thing is the daughter of the man he killed in battle recognizes his burden recognizes that he's not at ease, and they go out. They meet. They meet for lunch and end up talking through the ultimately incredible circumstance of a a daughter going out to lunch with the man who killed her father. And they leave, and it it just seemed very nice and cordial. But the daughter, who's also uh, really devout, uh, just can see that Dick Laird is haunted, that he has this burden, and she feels only she can relieve him. And so she writes him a letter granting atonement. And it's a really moving, uh, eloquent letter. And Dick Laird reads it and comes to tears. And that night, he says it's the first time in decades that he sleeps without nightmares. Hmm. And it was just so moving to me because we live in such divided times right now. And 
to me, the table in this story was set. I mean, who could be more divided than families where one killed the other? And yet these families were able to find a way to work it out. And to me, it's a pretty um, meaningful way to move on with life. You know, Laura always says that uh, her mother had always told her that um, you can't be a vessel of hate because it'll consume you. And she did her best to free the burden on another man. And uh, it was really beautiful. And you were, uh, just have about a minute left, you uh, you were able to meet uh, Laura's mother, right? Uh, Paul's widow at the very end of her life. What does that mean mean to you that she was uh, she could she could have been forgiven for carrying hate, right? Uh, she was left a widow, young sure. widow, but uh, she chose not yes. to do that. Yes, she kept her grace and dignity through incredible circumstances, and I'm just struck by how uh, you know in this country some really ordinary people who live ordinary lives can do some really extraordinary things. Nobody was watching. There was no audience. Nobody had to tell them to, to do any of this, and yet they followed their heart. You know, they followed their their conscience, and uh, I just think it's uh, it's a pretty inspiring example. Well, it's a wonderful uh, story. Um, fascinating. Well worth uh, picking up the book. Uh, the Storm on Our Shores is the latest from Marco Masic, and uh, we appreciate you spending the hour with us. Thank you so much. Thanks. That was really great, Tom. I appreciate it.